What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast. Uh, I am joined this week with Mr. Richard Kirwan. I actually was thinking about this earlier. I was like, is it Kirwan or Kirwan? <laughs> yeah, that's Kirwan. what I was thinking. Yeah, Kirwan. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Richie Kirwan, uh, do you prefer Richard or Richie? Oh, Richie's grand, yeah. Oh, Richie's uh, the only po- I keep saying the only person who calls me Richard is my mother when she's mad at me. So <laughs> we, we won't put you in that position today. Uh, so I'm joined by Richie Kirwan. Kirwan, and we're going to be talking. <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh, all things uh, muscle mass, strength, and aging, uh, because I think this is an interesting topic that we probably haven't addressed um, in great detail on the on the podcast before. We've had some episodes where we discuss, you know, the the importance obviously of of muscle with aging and health, etc. And it kind of comes up in many, many discussions, but we wanted to get Richie on to just talk about it in a little bit more detail. So before we get there, Richie, um, how did you get here interested in this stuff? And what's your story? Like, who are you? Why are you here on, on the Triage Method podcast? She's going straight in with a really deep one right, right there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I suppose, how did I get into get to where I am right now? Um, the whole way I got into nutrition and fitness was um, back in the day when I was a teenager, I used to be uh, overweight and very, very unfit. And I wanted to make a change about that. So when I was about 15, um, I decided to just kind of get into ex- reading about exercise, reading about nutrition. And I found it absolutely fascinating, something that I have since then, just it's something I love reading about and learning and being able to apply. Um, and when it came to uh, deciding what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and going to college, uh, my parents actually pushed me away from doing nutrition because back in, back in that, that era, and I'm aging myself now, uh, nutrition wasn't considered a particularly uh, viable career choice. So um, I decided to just go into general science and I did that in UCC. And um, then I went off and traveled for a while and never kind of didn't work in science at all. And um, then, but it, nutrition and fitness was always something that I, I had with me and it was something that I would love re- reading about constantly. Um, so I decided to get back into it eventually after a few years. I did my master's in nutrition then in um, University of Barcelona. Um, and I started working over there as a nutritionist for a while. Um, ended up moving to the UK and I decided that I really wanted to continue. Like I love coaching and I love working as a nutritionist and working with people, but I realized I wanted to get more into um, the academic side of things as well. And I wanted to get more into research. So I said, look, I have just want to do a PhD and started looking for one. And I was absolutely blessed because I found um, a PhD that was, it looked like it was made for me um, here in uh, Liverpool, John Moore's university. And it's all about, looking at the effects of high protein uh, Mediterranean style diets um, and resistance exercise on uh, body composition and cardiovascular health. And they're all kind of different aspects that I, I absolutely love because um, obviously I, I did the masters in uh, Barcelona and I, I always tell people I got brainwashed into loving the Mediterranean style diet <laughs> over there because it's literally all they talk about. Um, considering everybody on the faculty over there has done some research on the PREDIMED study. Um, and I, uh, I love Mediterranean diets, love high protein diets, love the research around that resistance exercise, and then being able to use it for something very, very practical. Uh, I thought, well, Jesus, this is made for me. So I applied for that. And that's what I'm doing now. Um, researching that technically, uh, you know, even during lockdown, but uh, waiting for uh, some eases on restrictions to, to, to get into my research again. 
That's brilliant. And, and you, you sent me on your recent paper that, was, that got accepted, I believe, yesterday. Is that right? So, got, well, it got accepted, I want to say Thursday or Friday last week. And nice. I just uh, let, you know, let people know yesterday. So yeah, yeah the ground know yesterday. Yeah, no, so c- congrats on that. And, and I had a read through it today, very comprehensive paper and a lot of stuff in there that we likely get stuck into today. And one of the, some of the, the terms that came up in the paper um, were, were things like sarcopenia and frailty. And uh, what, what, what was the... the the strength loss specific one, dynapnea? Dynapenia, yeah. Dynapenia, there you go. Um, I, 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 I thought it was a misspelling of dyspnea initially because I actually haven't seen that term before. I was like, oh, that's an interesting one. Um, so yeah, lots of different terms in there. And I suppose, like, what are the differences between these different terms when we start to look at um, the loss of muscle mass or the loss of strength? Like, like, what are we talking about when we talk about sarcopenia or frailty? Or how would you walk someone yeah, through like, that? And you wouldn't be the only person uh, like who, who's not familiar with some of those terms um, because they're not used all that often. So it was to start with sarcopenia, um, which is something that people are finally starting to give a little bit of credit to or a little bit of attention to. It's the uh, gradual loss or call a gradual loss of muscle mass as people age. So the way I, I kind of explain it to people is if you, if you imagine one of your grandparents and thinking of what they looked like when you were younger to what they look like now, if they're, if they're still alive, um, often we see older people kind of starting to shrink up a little bit and get a lot smaller as they get older. And that is one of the effects of sarcopenia. We see a loss in muscle size as they get older. And um, with that loss of muscle, we can have a lot of other uh, kind of decrements in, in muscle function and in health that are associated with them. We'll, we'll probably talk about that today. But then another aspect and the one that's even less commonly known is dynapenia, and that's the loss of muscle strength. That is, um, it's, in my opinion, I think it's probably even more uh, of a risk factor than sarcopenia, muscle size loss itself, because we're losing muscle power, we're losing, we're losing muscle function and quality with, with the dynapenia. Um, and the funny thing is they're starting to get more attention now, but the thing is uh, sarcopenia only became officially recognized as a diagnosable condition. I think it was 2017 or 2018. So it's quite recent that it's, it's got an official designation as a, as a disease. Um, so that's why there hasn't been a lot of talk about it, but it is something that is very, very prevalent um, in society. And like, I think, in let's say the population that are over 80 uh more than 40 percent to 50 percent of people can have sarcopenia so it's something that a lot of people need to be aware of because it's something that you know everybody will be affected by at some at some stage in their life yeah absolutely and and when we start to think about that then that sarcopenia um like so we're, we're accepting that there's some sort of normal um decline in muscle mass um, with age, you know, that we're not all going to keep gaining muscle into our seventies and eighties and, you know, keep progressing linearly throughout life. I think everyone is familiar with that, unfortunately, but at what point do we start to say, okay, sarcopenia is a concern or this person is sarcopenic versus this simply being a normal age related decline, or are they the same or, or how would you walk someone through that? So, so that's a really, really tough question to answer. Yeah. And the truth is, one of the tough things with sarcopenia and probably the reasons it hasn't got a lot of attention is because there is no consensus definition of what sarcopenia is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So like you might say, oh, it's just when, when people have lower amounts of muscle, but how do you define that? Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. one of the common uh, or the, one of the more commonly used methods nowadays is uh, it's 
it was a definition that was the European Working Group on sarcopenia in older people came up with. It's a they, they've got a, a terribly catchy acronym for that, but I can't remember it right now. Um, but it, it, I think it's two standard deviations below the normal muscle mass or the standard muscle mass for that group. And it also includes a measure of strength, which is usually based around hand grip strength as well, which is a, good in, a relatively good indicator um, of strength and fitness levels in older populations. And it's also a good indicator of uh, somebody's risk of death as well. So they use that combination of strength and uh, that uh, combinate with uh, body with muscle mass, which is often defined by uh, using a DEXA scanner, which is um, basically a fancy machine we use for measuring body composition. And then like you'll probably think straight away, well, there's another issue um, because we can't DEXA everybody yeah. um, because it's a very, very uh, expensive piece of equipment. It's not everywhere has them. And it takes a bit of time to, to get somebody to do it and you can't get everyone to do it. Um, so it's very, very difficult to diagnose. Um, so one of the things that we're looking at in our research is kind of handier ways of doing it. Can we do it with a, you know, the standard uh, bioimpedance body comp analyzers? Can we kind of get a good um, proxy measure using that? Um, so that's one of the major problems with, with trying to diagnose if somebody has sarcopenia or not. Yeah. And I suppose like with that said, I think, you know, I think it's interesting from a research perspective and a diagnostic perspective, obviously to ponder how exactly we diagnose it and what exactly the definition is, but regardless of whether or not you have a specific definition, action can still be taken. And I think that's kind of an important point is that, you know, like coming from a, a physiotherapy background to kind of criticize my own, you could say like, Physios are kind of notorious for under-prescribing um, any sort of progressive resistance training for elderly people. Um, that's, you know, pretty common. Like most people know that. And, you know, when you look at, at hospital physio, even for example, generally like recommendations for exercise are going to be quite conservative. So you could have someone that's leaving the hospital who maybe their body mass has declined. Uh, they may have just been bed bound for three weeks or whatever. And they might go home with a few kind of, you know, straighten the leg in the chair, sit out of the chair a couple of times. And it's kind of just like on a sheet and like, oh, there you go. Off you go. Um, you know, we'll see you next time. And that's kind of a bit of a recipe for disaster because the person has already had a decline in function, which then feeds into a feed forward cycle as they go home and they're no longer able to do the things that they were previously able to do. And then they're back in three years time again with another respiratory infection or whatever. And the cycle continues to go on. So I think while the definitions are really important, would you agree that we can still do a better job at intervening? And by we, I, do, I don't just mean physiotherapists or trainers or whatever, but I mean, you know, healthcare in general could probably do a better job to be intervening and preventing. Absolutely. Um, and like, I think we'll get into this a bit, a bit more sarcopenia. I think people are going to realize that in it, that it is an epidemic and we'll kind of talk about the importance of sarcopenia because it's not just, Oh, you know, people are losing a bit of muscle and you know, they're, they're not looking as jacked when they go to the beach or something yeah. like that. that. That's not the, the issue with sarcopenia. Um, but I think, when people realize how much of an issue it will be and can be in the future for people, people will realize that they'll want to prevent it. And the great thing about it, again, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit further on, is that sarcopenia, I think, is a very, very, uh, it, it is something that we can definitely work towards preventing in a lot of cases um, with, you know, obviously exercise and then with, with nutrition as well. And I think it's, it should be something that, you know, people who are working closely with individuals like 
whether it's primary care, like you said, like physios, whatever, that they should be, they should be aware of it and they should be able to kind of, or willing to give advice to older people to say, okay, look, this is something that you're potentially at risk of. This is something that you can do to basically try and prevent this as much as possible. So yeah, um, I would like to see more of a, an effort being made to combat it. Yeah. And, and I suppose like in addition to that, when you think about the average person just trying to identify this or think about this as well, like people probably immediately when they think of sarcopenia, they picture maybe someone who's like really, really frail, a tiny old lady, you know, on the kind of tea and toast diet and that's it. But the reality is that it's, it's not just that little old lady and that we can have, you can have sarcopenia while still having high levels of body fat on, on the outside potentially appearing like, you know, you're at a, an, you're actually overweight, you know, the, you're not just underweight. So could you talk me through kind of like the discrepancy there, like the difference between like someone who's just got low muscle mass and low body weight and others within the sarcopenic category? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you're right to say that it's, so for, first off, I think it's important to say that probably the the viewership or the listenership that you have for this mm-hmm. they're probably going to be quite safe from sarcopenia just because I, I'm, I'm i'm making a big assumption that they're all going to be engaged in some sort, yeah, sort of probably. lifelong exercise but if we think about it like this sarcopenia can start in as early as one's 30s for women and uh, in the 40s for men that are, and that's generally because most people don't do enough exercise. They spend a lot of time sitting. They have very, very, very poor diets. Um, so it is a major concern that people need to be aware. Of. And I, I think uh, I got started on that. Now I'm not forgetting what direction I was going with it. What was the the, the question? <laughs> I was just I talking about the, the the fact that you know sarcopenia does not necessarily equal underweight. That you know you yeah. can still have sarcopenia and, and excess body fat. Absolutely. Yeah. So. BMI, uh, the much maligned BMI, body mass index, is, is something people would think, oh, maybe we can use that. We can just weigh somebody. If somebody's underweight, we can assume that they're, 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 they're sarcopenic. And that's not always the case. And, and the reason for that is, is because, especially in my research, we're looking at something that's not just sarcopenia. We're looking at something called sarcopenic obesity. And sarcopenia, obviously, is muscle loss. Obesity is an increase in excess fat mass. If you've got both of them combined, you've got sarcopenic obesity, very, very original title. Um, but it's basically more than the sum of its parts. It's yeah. um, where we have the negative effects of low muscle mass and the negative effects of high fat mass together. And what happens there is you could have somebody who has, is within a, let's say, inverted commas, healthy BMI, um, but they may have exceptionally low levels of muscle mass and high levels of fat mass, but they're, they're a healthy body weight. So if a doctor is just looking at their body weight by height and their BMI, he says, oh, this person's absolutely healthy, but they may be metabolically very, very unhealthy and you know, basically prime, primely set up for a lot of chronic disease as they, as they continue to age. So that's something people need to be aware of that we, we can't just determine it by, you might not even be able to tell somebody sarcopenic by looking at them if they're wearing clothes. You know, maybe if you, if you get them to take off their, their shirt, you might see that they've got very, very little uh, muscle mass on their arms, very, very skinny arms. Um, they might have a, a pot belly, which is, you know, that excess adiposity around the stomach, might have very, very skinny legs. And that's a, a good giveaway. But again, we don't have a good um, way of measuring that definitely yet. Yeah. And, and actually a question that I'm not sure 
um, of the answer to, but we, we, you, we've got this concept of, of anabolic resistance, which, you know, you might, you might define for, for the listeners, but with, with the anabolic resistance, once you've answered that question, do we know if people who have uh, sarcopenia plus underweight versus sarcopenic obesity, if they differ in their degree of anabolic resistance? Like I think mechanistically it might make sense that there'd be a difference, but, but I'm not sure of the answer to that. So yeah, that, that's a good one. And I haven't actually looked at any differences um, between those two populations. Um, and it, it's interesting because, so I suppose first, the first thing to do would be to define anabolic resistance. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that older people get sarcopenia in the first place. It's because, so, so anabolic resistance means that the body is no longer um, as easily stimulated to grow muscle um, as it is when it's younger. So to give a, an example of that, um, everybody will know that if you have a certain dose of protein, you can stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which is fantastic. Um, so in a young population, let's say, if you give somebody 20 grams of whey protein, you can maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But if you give that same dose to an older person, you're not going to stimulate muscle protein synthesis as much. This is, this is as a result of anabolic resistance. Um, so what might happen in an older person is you need a larger dose of protein to stimulate the same thing. And the same goes for exercise. So exercise stimulates muscle growth as well. But in older people, they may need actually higher intensities of exercise than younger people to bring about the same stimulation. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, so for example, one of them is insulin resistance. So we know that as people get older, they tend to get insulin resistance. And, and what's interesting with that is, um, if you're insulin resistant, you're going to grow less muscle. And if you have less muscle, you also become more insulin resistant. So we've got this, this terrible uh, chronic cycle that's kind of resulting in lower muscle mass and more dysfunction and more muscle mass. Um, another issue with uh, uh, leading to kind of anabolic resistance is the decrease in, horm in, in certain hormones as we get older. So for example, in, in men, testosterone levels tend to drop uh, from our 30s onwards. Um, in women uh, after their menopause, there's a massive drop in uh, progesterone and estrogen. Uh, and estrogen is, is still a very, very anabolic hormone in, in women. And you've got a drop in these hormones, which results in lower muscle mass as well. Um, and then the big one that also contributes to anabolic resistance is just the lack of activity. As people get older, we just become lazier and, and work out less. But one of the interesting things is the way fat mass plays into this. And this is where the sarcopenic obesity things co comes in is because we know fat mass, if we carry a considerable amount of it, it, it works like an organ and it works uh, as an endocrine organ and it can pump out these inflammatory compounds into our blood. So what we have is this low level inflammatory state in the body. Um, and that can be you know, responsible for a lot of other issues, you know, it can be responsible for diabetes, it can be responsible for heart disease, but it can also contribute to anabolic resistance as well. And, low, you know, an increased level of catabolism, so more muscle breakdown, less muscle building as we're getting older because of this excess fat mass. So if you've got somebody who's got sarcopenia and somebody who's sarcopenic um, obese, where they've got that extra fat mass, you could say, you could make a case or an argument for the fact that they might be even more likely to suffer from more anabolic resistance. But as far as I'm aware, there's not a huge amount of research, um, you know, basically investigating the differences between two groups. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's what I was thinking as well. I was like, oh, you know, you could def you could make the case that the 
the layering on of obesity might make it worse. But as you said, you know, it's, it's not so clear. But I think important for people as well is to realize that, you know, what's actually going on beyond just because I suppose people might think sometimes, oh, you know, it's fine. I'm going to lose a bit of function as I age. It's fine. I'll just spend more time on the couch and I'll be happy out watching telly. But it's not really that simple either. And I think, you know, people need to be aware of the fact that there are comorbidities and increased mortality risk that comes with this decline in muscle mass. And if there's elevations in body fat and the the cardiometabolic consequences of that, that all these things kind of come together. So other than simply, I can't get out of the chair, what are some of the other things that we're at risk of if we do have this, this sarcopenia and or sarcopenic obesity? Well, well, there's a lot to it. And like, you know, you've said other than, oh, I can't get out of the chair. And to be honest, like, we, and we'll get onto frailty, but I think that's a major one. It because, is, it um, really is. Yeah, let, let, let's, let's, just, let's just talk about frailty for a second. Yeah. So frailty is basically, a, it doesn't really have a fantastic definition, but it's, it's kind of a loss of physical reserve and function um, as we get older. And you just nailed it on the head right there. If you said to somebody, okay, what's going to happen when you get older is you're going to have trouble getting out of a chair. You're going to have trouble walking up the stairs you're going to have trouble reaching up to the top shelf in your kitchen or you're carrying the groceries home you're 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 telling somebody there you're not going to be able to function as a human being anymore right and that for me okay and like you know for a lot of people that's absolutely terrifying and i think for anybody who has who's had a grandparent who has been confined to bed or confined to a chair you realize how serious that is and you're, you're taking, so, talking about taking somebody's humanity away from, there, from them. And it is still something that we can potentially prevent with a few different lifestyle changes. So for me, frailty is, is absolutely massive. People don't think about it, but not being able to carry out your day-to-day activities terrifies me. Or being afraid that you're going to, to slip. Um, and like, oh, geez, I'll, I'll give you this story here. So... Um, a big thing with, with people who uh, have frailty and sarcopenia is that they have a higher risk of falls. Okay, and people say, oh, so you got a higher risk of falls, so what? Well, people who have a higher risk of falls also have a higher risk of breaking uh, a bone or having a fracture. And funnily enough, when you have sarcopenia, you've also got low, um, a higher risk of osteoporosis. So you've got a higher risk of brittle bones, and it's easy enough to think of why, because mm-hmm. sarcopenia means you're your muscles aren't putting as much force onto your bones as much and your bones need that stimulus to stay strong and, and maintain their integrity. Um, so if somebody falls, they're more likely to break a hip. If they break a hip, their uh, risk of um, dying in the next 12 months increases considerably. And like you probably know better than me, but I, I, I think it's close to a, a 50% greater risk of... Um, uh, it's very, I'm not sure the specific number, but it's very significant, more than you'd think. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. And like to give an example, my grandmother, when I was about, I want to say about 16, 17 years old, she was in a supermarket. She slipped on a grape, okay? And she wasn't able to catch herself. She fell, she broke her hip, and within 12 months, she had died, unfortunately. And, and that is something that can happen. Yeah. You want to be strong. You want your muscles to be able to, to, to hold you up if, because if you ever slip, you want your muscles to be able to react so you can counterbalance yourself and hold yourself up or at least cushion yourself on the way down. So frailty, huge one, okay? Um, and something that everybody needs to take seriously. Uh, another major one that is associated with sarcopenia is heart disease. 
So, uh, and this is, this is interesting as well because we've got this thing called the obesity paradox. Um, and the obesity paradox, it's, it's basically a remnant of using BMI as our, as our measure for, for body weight. Um, and what it, we see in the obesity paradox is that people who have a higher BMI, or at least people who have got heart conditions who have a higher BMI, have a lower risk of mortality than people with a lower BMI. And people are like, well, these people have higher levels of fat. You know, well, we're assuming they have higher levels of fat. What's going on there? And we actually think that the people who have a, a higher BMI, they have that higher BMI because they've got higher levels of muscle. So they may have high levels of fat as well, but the muscle is actually protective to a certain point. Um, and we know that people with that lower BMI, they may actually have a high level of body fat, but quite low levels of muscle mass. And then there's, there's, there have been quite a few studies that have looked at that and seeing that the people who have the highest risk of um, uh, heart disease tend to have lower muscle mass and higher levels of body fat. So it's just this combination of, of factors together. Uh, another major one is diabetes. Um, and, and I think we have a fairly kind of easy explanation for that is because muscle is probably the, is the biggest sink for glucose disposal in our body. The more active muscle you have, the more you're, you're, you're better able to uh, uh, manage your glucose levels. Um, and if you have got lower levels of muscle, it, it kind of result, results in insulin resistance and you've got a greater risk of diabetes. There's cognitive decline. So if you're, if you're not as active, if you have higher levels of sarcopenia, you're more likely to have issues with your cognitive function, higher levels of depression. And that can be related to the frailty again, because if you think about it, if somebody can't go out, uh, they're going to feel bad about themselves. They can't do stuff for themselves. They'll feel bad. They might not be able to socialize, go out and see their friends as much. So there's all of these conditions related to it. Um, that people don't think about just because people aren't using their muscle as much as they should and then end up being not able to use that muscle, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I think, I think that was brilliant. And you touched on two, two things in particular that I'd like to, to jump back to just to emphasize for people. And the first one being the fact that you did, you know, you doubled down on that frailty and reminding people of how important that is. And I, I think that is incredibly important. And because like like I alluded to, people kind of think it's it's not a big deal. Like it's like oh you know I I I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about like not getting out of a chair. Like I'll you know I'll deal with that when it comes or whatever. But the reality of that is that we, we kind of look at this in in the physiotherapy world at least or allied health in general. You kind of look at things through the the lens of like the ICF framework. So for example, if you've got some sort of physical impairment, let's say we say it's decreased quadriceps, quadriceps strength. It's like, okay, not a big deal. But then you move that forward to an activity limitation. So what does that restrict you from doing? Getting out of a chair, walking, walking upstairs, et cetera. So it's kind of like you're zooming out a little bit and you're like, okay, that's kind of a, a big personal thing. But then what you look at is the participation restriction that comes from that. So what can you not do if you can't walk or get out of a chair? Okay, now you can't, like you said, do the shopping. You can't go and get things from the shelves and you're now dependent on another a carer to look after you um all these different things you know the things that mean the, the most to you for example you might be an elderly person who loves bingo you might love going to the pub for a few pints you know if that's your favorite thing you're not going to be able to do that if you can't get out of the chair in the first place so as you begin to zoom out you can kind of start to see the person beyond the quadriceps strength that we like to zoom in on when we think about physiology and we actually start to look at the person in their world as a whole and all of those things then interlink because for example 
if you can't go and do the shopping or whatever, it's far more likely that you're going to make uh, poor dietary choices, which then feed into potentially the cardiometabolic risk and or an acceleration of the sarcopenia or frailty that's already um, in place. And, And that's what you see in elderly people a lot of the time. Like that's why, you know, you'll hear that phrase of the, the, the old lady diet of just kind of tea and toast, because, you know, they're not really prepared to cook much else other than that. And as, as anyone interested in fitness will know, like, eating mostly uh, or having mostly tea and toast probably isn't the best for the old games, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's quite important. No, absolutely. And, and, and like you made a really, really good point there. It, it's, it is all cumulative. Yeah. So, and that is the, the point of sarcopenia. And I just want to, I, I, again, I'll double down on that is that when it starts to develop, people automatically assume this is inevitable. You know, you're going to get older. I don't need to be as physically active anymore. And then you've got it. You've got this, just this uh, snowball effect where people are becoming less active. They're gaining a little bit of weight and and funnily enough, gaining weight actually makes them less efficient for their, their muscle size. So muscle uh, movement becomes less comfortable, um, less easy to do. So they move less. So their muscles get smaller and their body fat gets, you know, increases in size. You've got more inflammation more muscle loss and it's just this, this terrible um cyclic effect of uh sarcopenia that progresses or can progress for some people yeah absolutely so i think at this point in the conversation we've established sarcopenia kind of a big deal we probably don't want to have a decline in muscle mass with age or rather that we don't want it to be accelerating so fast and one of the things that came up in the paper that I thought was quite interesting was the concept of gradual versus the catabolic crisis kind of model of looking at sarcopenia. Because I suppose when people look at their their lives, if they're zooming out in this conversation, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to lose muscle mass. What might that look like? They're like, okay, it's going to be some sort of gradual decline over time. However, that's not always the case. You know, people, you know, have cardiovascular events or they have a hospitalization for a surgery or an infection or whatever, and other things can interject in that period of time. So, so what might that actually look like? And, and why do we differentiate between those two models? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Cause I've, so I, when I was looking into research on, on sarcopenia initially, I, I assumed myself that it was something that would happen gradually. Um, but I first got introduced to that idea of the catabolic crisis from a researcher called uh, Luke Van Loom, uh, who did a, a conference here in the UK last year. And he was talking about uh, how older people are more likely to go to the hospital more regularly. And that's, that's understandable. Um, uh, and if an older person goes to the hospital, they're going to be in the hospital for a few days or maybe even a, a week. And we know from research these days that even young people, if you put them into a hospital bed, um, uh, basically where they're not moving for you know, a, the vast majority of the day, not only do you get a massive increase in insulin resistance, but you also get a really, really sudden decrease in muscle mass. And like very, very sudden, like I'm talking over a kilogram of muscle lost or muscle mass anyway lost in a period as short as seven days. Okay, so what we have is a situation where older people who are more prone to muscle loss are going to hospital, they're spending a few days there, they're not doing any activity at all, their step count is down, they're lying down all day, they lose muscle mass and they get a little bit weaker. So you've got that dynapenia coming in as well. So 
what happens is instead of a gradual decline in muscle mass, we have this sudden drop in muscle mass. And while they may regain a little bit of that muscle mass afterwards, they may not fully regain it at all. And then what happens is, you know, they may continue on gradually losing a tiny little bit of muscle mass until the next time they go to hospital, which again, as we said, in older people can be relatively frequent. And then they get a, another drop in muscle mass. And each time they have that drop in muscle mass, we call it a catabolic crisis. And, and actually one of the things that we, we spoke about in the research paper that I, I, I submitted recently was the risk of that happening in people who have uh, COVID-19. Okay, because we have a huge amount of people, again, a lot of older people are suffering from this, who are going to hospitals, they're going to ICUs where their movement is incredibly limited, obviously because of you know, quarantine measures. Um, and they may be spending weeks in hospital. I, I, I think you know, some studies show that people were spending two, three weeks in hospital, especially those who are going to ICU are spending even more time in there. And you're getting this massive drop in muscle mass and strength and they're not going to necessarily recover from it, which is going to put people at risk of a lot of other conditions in, in the long term. So um, yeah, it's, it's something that we need to bear in mind that like when people are going to the hospital, it is putting them at a, a greater risk of, of, of muscle mass loss. Yeah, and I think one of the, the things that, are one of the, the useful concepts to keep in mind, I think when we start to think about that catabolic crisis uh, a, a perspective on things, is the concept of like your physiological reserve. So what do you actually have left, you know, to lose? Like, what do you have to lose? And that, that can be looked at like purely in terms of, of strength or muscle or cardiorespiratory fitness um, or any other um, component of fitness that you might be concerned about. Like what, what's going to happen if you lose 20% of that? Um, is it the case that you were previously able to run 5k and now after hospitalization you can only run 4k it's like okay you know that's that's fine that's not too much of a big deal but if previously you were able to get out of the chair 10 times in the one day without getting too tired and now you can only get out of it five times in the one day without getting too tired and the other five times were all essential for you to get out of the chair that's kind of a big deal you've lost a significant portion um of your physiological reserve so i suppose the way i think about this for people um, or like for, for trainers at least, is that you want someone to have the best reserve possible um, as they move into to older age because they have more that they're going to lose because it's inevitably inevitably going to be lost. So we're not trying to we're not trying to reverse the natural course of aging and that we can't we can't do that. You know, we're all going to get old and we're all going to get weaker. But what you can do is basically save up as much as you possibly can so that when you get there, it might be as detrimental if you do have these these significant catabolic events. Absolutely. Um, that, and, and that's a good way to kind of to, to tell it to people when you're, you're trying to encourage them to, into mm -hmm. some form of resistance exercise or some sort of a, a lifestyle changes to help them, you know, improve their muscle mass. Um, and it, it's just interesting because, so I did a podcast with, um, just to plug my own one now, um, with a guy who he authored one of the papers. So the paper that you're mentioning, that you mentioned earlier about the catabolic crisis that was written by two guys in the States called uh, Padden Jones and English. And I had um, Kirk English on my own podcast a couple of days ago and he works with NASA. And nice. he um, said that when, uh, what are they called? Uh, astronauts go into space, you have two different conditions. You've got the not so fit astronaut who can go into space and they're not going to lose a huge amount of muscle mass because they're not starting with a particularly large amount of muscle mass. But then you've got the particularly fit ones who go into space and they tend to lose more absolute muscle mass 
while they're in space because they started with a larger amount, but they also come out with more muscle mass than the original guys as well. And it's the exact same thing. You want to put yourself in a good position. Um, and, you know, if, if you think about it, like if we're talking to, you know, a pile of young people are listening to this in their 20s, you know, you've got, you know, plenty of time yeah. to, to build muscle and build strength you know, going into your later years. And that's not to say that like, you know, if, if you have some people who are in their, in your eighties listening to this, um, like you can absolutely make changes to your body composition and particularly to your strength and your muscle function with training. And you can make a huge difference to your health long-term as well. Yeah. And I suppose that, that was, that was exactly going to be my next question is like, right. We've, we've we've got the buy-in from people people get it all right we need to we need to make some gains and i suppose just just quickly on that note like as we move forward like we're not suggesting that everyone needs to get up to bodybuilder level so that they have this reserve you know that's absolutely not the case you know um people even exercising a few times a week would probably be a very big win compared to where we are in terms of exercise guidelines adherence but as people are aging you know what are the, the, the recommendations? Like we do have solid recommendations and I don't think enough people are probably aware of them, but what should people be aiming at as they move into, let's say, 40s, 50s, 60s in terms of, of resistance training? Or sorry, um, just exercise in general. I shouldn't say just resistance training. You know, I, that, that's good because what, what I'll say is I, I want to touch on the fact that movement in general is, yep. is what people should be aiming for. Um, and I, I'll say this, you may... Like resistance exercise, and we'll talk about it, is, is one of the best things somebody can do for building muscle and maintaining muscle strength. But not everybody's going to hop into a gym and start um, doing bench presses or squats or whatever. So you have to find something that people can do. And I think if you can get somebody who does absolutely nothing and you can get them walking, that's a win. If you can get that person to join a walking group and go out regularly with people, fantastic. If you can get that person to go to, let's say, a seniors class or an aqua aerobics class, massive win right there. You want people moving. And, and we have plenty of really, really good evidence that shows that step counts have a, a big uh, role to play in, in muscular metabolic health um, and maintaining insulin sensitivity and keeping uh, anabolic resistance at bay. So get people walking. But if we can get people exercising in the gym, like you said, two or three days a week, where would be absolutely fantastic. And if you look at the, the, the body of research that's out there, a lot of the research protocols are looking at things like that. You're talking about 45 to an hour in the gym doing, um, uh, sorry, three, two or three days a week. And in the paper that we published, there was actually a really, really interesting meta-analysis that we, we referred to. And in the meta-analysis, what they did was they looked at a load of studies in older people just to see what was the best kind of protocol uh, to use when it comes to um, uh, you know, their, their frequency in the gym, what type of routines they should do. And basically, the, the results came out that, and bear in mind that this is a meta-analysis, so it's, it's, it's not going to be like, you know, I'm not saying this is set in stone, but it's more of a kind of some ideas for people. And I'm going to say these, and people are going to listen to that and say, that sounds, you know, pretty basic, but like, it doesn't need to be anything complicated. Um, and we're talking about like going to the gym three days a week, having a, a training volume of two to three sets per exercise, um, probably doing uh, something from like seven to 10 repetitions, something around 70% of somebody's one rep max or 50 to 70% of that. Um, and then like, you know, with about two minutes of rest between, um, between uh, sets. 
So like I'll, you'll hear that and anybody who's, you know, halfway kind of clued into what's going on in the world of resistance exercise will say, yeah, that sounds very, very standard, you know, um, and that's all you need to do. The reason people lose muscle is because they're doing nothing. Yeah. So if you can get somebody, if you can get them from doing nothing to doing something, you're already way ahead of the game. Um, it doesn't need to be the most complicated routine in the world. You just need to get people moving first off. And then you can kind of worry about like, you know, getting them lifting weights and entering, you know, the Arnold Classic or something like that. That, that actually is so important for people though, because like sometimes as, as trainers, like let's say, or people who are just into the gym themselves, you get so bogged down in like the nuances of like, you might be watching a debate about people debating, should it be one rep in reserve or two to three reps in reserve? And just the nuances of this exercise versus that exercise. And we kind of lose the bigger picture, which is that the vast majority of people do basically no exercise, you know, pretty much nothing that we would consider to be in anywhere intense. Gary, I, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, and like, this, this is me just kind of being jaded with the whole uh, academic system and like the, the, the world of fitness. But when I hear some conversations on some of these groups on, on Facebook or whatever, Reddit, and people talking about these tiny, little, minute details, it's like, oh, how many sets should I do a week? Or, you know, how, how many times a week should I train chest? And I'm like, I'm like Jesus Christ, just lift something fucking weights like I, I i i sometimes i want to slap people and they say oh should i should i be doing um leg extensions with my toes pointed outwards or pointed yeah. inwards or what should i be doing I'm like Fuck's sake. excuse me language like but like it's just people focus on the stupidest things it's great to research them you know like you know you, like you know you can have people like you know I, I want to research the difference between doing a leg extension with my toes pointing outwards or my toes pointing inwards I don't care uh, as long as somebody does a leg extension, you know, um, or not even a leg extension, just find something that they like to do instead. You know, might be climbing up the stairs 20 times a day. Um, yeah, but, but it's, it's, it is funny because I think uh, at times we actually do ourselves a disservice in the fitness industry because you make the, we make the information less approachable. Because, for example, you could have fitness professionals that genuinely will spend all the time mocking each other and not even talking to each other, like falling out over whether they prefer six to eight reps or 10 to 12 reps like that happens man there's there's people who will actually not speak to other trainers because they have disagreements about you know whether leg extensions are useful or machines versus free weights etc and like at times like i'm sympathetic to that i'm like yeah right you know you're allowed to argue about the nuances and stuff but i think like your public presentation is important too like if we do actually want at a public health level people to be able to engage with exercise and resistance training etc then you know if they go online and they can't even find an agreement about what a basic program might look like it's it's very difficult to move forward from there you know but, but it's because of, it's no wonder that the general public has absolutely no idea what constitutes a good exercise routine or what constitutes uh, a good diet because there are so many, and excuse the word, but there are so many fucking gobshites out there <laughs> saying that their way is the best way and every other way is pure shite. And there couldn't be more shite spoken. And I'm sorry, you're probably going to have to put a, like a parent, parental no, advice to your podcast. We're both Irish. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's just ridiculous. Like, 
it's, it's, I think it's more, it's, it's very common in diet as well, where you'll have people going on about low carb and high carb and you're like, Jesus Christ, just eat your vegetables and a bit of protein would be grand. That's the way I see it. Like, you know, um, and, and the same for exercise, like, you know, people like, but people also like black and white answers as well, you know, and we have to bear that in mind. You know, people want to know, should I be doing resistance exercise or should I be doing aerobic exercise? And, you know, people don't like the answer. Well, you can do both and that's grand as well. You know, it's yeah. probably better if you do both, you know? Um, yeah. It's, sorry. Bit of a rant out there. <laughs> no, no, no. Complete, completely justified. So, so now people know that they should be, they should be lifting. And I think like, I think we might've touched on this in the DMs and in a conversation before, but I suppose like one of the, the barriers, I think is obviously people's beliefs about exercise as it relates to aging this is something you know i've seen and and you've seen in terms of in practice in in cardiac rehab in speaking to elderly individuals people don't think resistance training is safe a lot of the time you know even if they do enjoy it um and and you know people can kind of be looking at you if you're telling someone in their 80s to lift weights and they're kind of look at you like you have 10 heads like you know is this is this guy serious like is that really what you're suggesting but i think interestingly like we do actually have trials um of resistance training and quite progressive resistance training in pretty elderly people like into their 80s which is quite interesting so um do you think that you know we need to be concerned about safety you know for for these people and is this is it a case that a personal trainer can work with someone in their 70s and just you know adopt a standard approach of progressing from baseline and to the person's tolerance or what do we need to think about here do you think so I think people need to stay within their lane to a certain extent. Sure. So if somebody has, so let's, let's say, for example, with my pop, the populations I work with, I work with people who have heart disease. Okay. It's a population that we need to be cautious of. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but the problem is people can be too cautious with everything. And I completely agree with you that people are too cautious when prescribing exercise. Um, so one of the first things I did with my PhD was uh, I went to a few different cardio re- cardiac rehab clinics just to see how they actually do stuff with people. And a lot of the stuff that they were doing was very, very basic. Like, you know, you'd have a lot of older people, again, like you said, in their, in your, in their eighties, you know, with rubber bands or just swinging their arms up and down and stuff like that. And you know, that this is very, very underpowered. Uh, but I was very, very lucky to get an introduction to somebody who does cardiac rehab in, in Preston, just up, up North here from Liverpool. And he is, is kind of known within the cardiac rehab community as somebody who specializes in car, uh, resistance exercise for older people. And one thing that he said to me was very, very interesting. And he said, everybody in my field is terrified to put people lifting weights because they think they're going to, you know, um, give themselves a heart attack or they're going to rupture their lungs or something like that or rupture a blood vessel. And he, as a comparison, he said to me, you generate more intra-abdominal pressure when you sneeze than when you do a squat. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Like that's, that's a really, really good point. Like, you know, um, we don't want to baby people, but we also need to bear in mind that we need to start people at their own level, you know? So um, I know a lot of people are very, very, you know, you, you have people who are big fans of like, you know, doing free weight exercises. You have people who are big fans of using machines. I think it's a matter of starting people at where they are. And, you know, if you're talking about working with the people in their eighties, you are starting at a potentially a quite a low level yeah. and you need to build up from there. But I think, like you said, some progressive overload, um, and building people up and pushing people a little bit is really, really important. But you still need to bear in mind that you need to 
to keep an eye on on older people as well. Um, so, like for example, in the cardiac re the cardiac rehab groups that I go to, there's somebody on uh, uh, at hand at all times to measure blood blood pressure because you know you can have things like postural hypertension as well, which can be a major issue for for some older people, especially those with heart conditions. So. I think it's important to be aware of these conditions. And if you're uncomfortable or haven't worked with people in, um, who are older before, it's worth getting more training or working with somebody uh, who can um, basically help you with that. And I don't know what the system is like in, in Ireland for, for that at all. Um, when it comes to work with older people, you probably know more about that yourself, Gary. What's it, what is it like? Um, you know, like, are, are there specific qualifications for people to work with older individuals or people with heart disease, things like that? Yeah, like there are, I think there are, like you can get some like additional certifications that'll give you, you know, oh yeah, I'm certified to work with people um, in pregnancy or post-pregnancy or whatever, or people with heart disease. But honestly, like I haven't heard of any, anything that is formal or legally required or anything like that, uh, particularly as it relates to the elderly. Like I do know some trainers who work with quite a lot of, of elderly individuals. And I think like one of the beautiful things about exercise that is quite simple is that it's like the principles are almost universal in that like what what does Richie come in to me with like if Richie comes in and you know getting out of the chair is hard then that's where we start that's resistance training you know getting you to, to squat to down to the bench maybe holding a five kilo plate and doing that five times or whatever that could be the start of a workout and I think like having that kind of exercise agnostic approach where look all I'm trying to do is load the body and progress the stimulus over time rather than thinking oh it has to be squat bench deadlift or it has to be all machines or whatever rather than adopting that kind of uh, just that recipe type of approach I think that can be quite empowering for people because then you can at least try to show people what they can do and I think that is one of the most important things for me at least when it comes to working with elderly individuals is that it's it, the, the beliefs are going to be there that this mightn't be appropriate for them. So if you can adopt an approach where you're trying to foster self-efficacy in the individual by showing them what they can do, um, that can be really powerful. So for example, someone might come in, they might be 75 years old, they had a previous knee replacement and they've got a bit of osteoarthritis in the other knee. Like that's not uncommon. Like you're going to deal with these things. And, you know, they might say, oh, look, I'm not sure if I could do any squatting or anything like that. My knees aren't great. So instead of saying, you know, let's work up to your max squat today and see what the max you can do is, see what the minimum is, you know, try and find an entry point. And if the person can leave after the first workout and realize that, you know what, I actually did two, se two sets of, of getting up with a five kilo plate today, that wasn't too bad. And then the next day they come in, you're like, you know, we might try and maybe do an extra rep today. And that's it. That's your entry point, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I think that approach is just really important for people. Uh, but as for specific certifications or whatever, I'm not entirely sure myself. But but I just said I'd throw that in there because I do think it's quite important. That that role of the practitioner is is huge. Um, like like you said, in, in establishing the level that they're at, but also just as a support for people as well. Because yeah. um, you know you you want people to be confident that this is going to be good for them. So you need to be confident in it too. And you need to project that confidence onto yeah. the people too. Um, we did uh, some quantitative research, uh, so, sorry, some qualitative research on um, the protocol that we're going to be using uh, with a group of cardiac patients. And we asked them what they thought about resistance exercise in general, would they be willing to try it? And one of the common things that we got from them was they'd be willing to try it 
as long as they had somebody there with them mm -hmm. to show them how to do it right so that they knew they were doing it right. And it, that's a huge thing. It's having somebody there. And like, I, I don't like saying to hold your hand, but it kind of is just to let you know that you're doing the right thing. You're doing it in the right way. And you're not going to you know, snap your spine in half or something like that when you're, when you're doing it. And, yeah. and that, that can be ma majorly beneficial for everybody, but it seems to be very, very important for, for older people in particular as well. 100%. And I think another thing there as well is like finding a way that you can actually relay the importance to the person. Like I, last year when we were working in, when I was, I was working in cardiac rehab as part of my final, final physio placement, like one of the things that, that came up was, so basically we had introduced resistance training for like, it was a pro proper progressive res resistance training with deadlifts and squat variations, et cetera. Again, tailored to whatever they were presenting with. But it was a, a big kind of shock to the system for some people. And there was a couple of important things that I would kind of really on from that. There was one example where, you know, one lady was kind of resistant enough to doing it. She was like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I do the gardening or whatever. And like my back had be already wrecked after that. And that's kind of what I'd be doing. And, you know, I don't think this is really for me. So like from my perspective, I was like, okay, like the way we can frame that then is let's make this about your gardening. Like if you get stronger at this deadlift, carrying the bucket in the garden is not going to be as hard anymore. Okay. So while you might be a little bit sore after the first session, I think it's important to anticipate that for people and make sure that it's not a surprise because as you know yourself, if someone does get a, a bit, bit of pain in the back, like it seems like the biggest deal. So letting people know that that might be normal is, is a good idea, but making it important for people, you know, saying that, look, you haven't been able to do the gardening that much. I think that if you get a bit stronger, it might actually be easier or, you know, you've been struggling to mow the lawn this we're doing a prowler here if you can push this prowler you can surely push the lawn more in four weeks time you know those types of things for people can be quite powerful especially like if you've got grandkids or whatever you're no longer able to carry your grandkids you'd, you'd like to be able to they're small you'd like to be able to play with them like okay you know let's do the workout today and the aim the aim of this is to be able to play with sally in four weeks that's our goal you know that sort of stuff can be very meaningful for people because what we have to realize is that for me and you and for a lot of people in the fitness industry, we might be motivated by the fact that, you know, the old biceps will be looking a bit, a bit bigger next summer, or, you know, I'll be looking shredded on the beach or whatever, but other, other people don't have those concerns, um, particularly elderly people. So making it relatable, always, always important. I think in my own experience, kids and grandkids are probably the greatest motivators for sure. I've seen for, for bringing about lifestyle change. I, and I, I've had, I, when I have people like applying to work with me, you, you get like, you, they'll give you reasons. And one of the ones I had recently is, uh, since I had my kids, I've begun to realize my own mortality and I'm like, <laughs> all right, okay, nice. <laughs> this guy's already bought in. Like, you know, yeah. he, he, he knows what he wants to do because you want to be able to, to, to be around for your kids and your grandkids and you want to be able to protect them. You want to be able to play with them. Yeah. And like, I don't think there's any better motivation than that at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground um, in this podcast so far. I'm not sure I had any other immediate questions I wanted to ask you. I think um, we covered everything I wanted. Was there anything you'd like to add to the conversation that we didn't get covered? No, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy with, with everything that um, we, we, we covered there. Um, I suppose, like, just to say to people, it's, it is not complicated to, yeah, really to kind of, to look after yourself with, you know, thinking about in, in terms of sarcopenia, as you get older, you know, exercise, move regularly, is, is, is what I say, eat well, 
you know, get your protein and you'll be grand. Um, and like, obviously I've got that paper out and it's got more specific recommendations yeah. for nutrition and stuff like that, but um, it's not complicated at all. And I think the, the reason we've got this, I'm going to say again, in inverted commas, epidemic of sarcopenia coming is just because we have a society that has very, very poor lifestyle habits when it comes to diet and exercise in general. And if we kind of just remedy that, remedied that a little bit, we, we'd go a long way to, towards pre- preventing sarcopenia. 100%. Um, I would echo that. And to confirm for people listening, if you'd like to read um, more about sarcopenia or whatever, I will link uh, below as able. I, I don't think your paper is published yet. Is that correct? It'll um, be published probably by the end of September. So grant. Um, I'll so, send that link over to you once ready. Perfect. So when it's ready, I will link that and I will, cause this will be probably coming out in a couple of weeks. We'll release it on the podcast. Okay. So I'll, I'll link, I'll link the paper below and any other, any other podcasts. I know you actually have some podcasts on your own podcasts on your own podcast um, about sarcopenia as well. I know you've talked to Austin Baraki who we were hoping to get on um, at some point as well, because I think he has some nice perspectives on how this looks in the hospital and stuff like that. Austin's um, brilliant to talk to. Yeah. He's, he's excellent. He's one of my favorite people. Um, but, but yeah, and, and you've had some other, some other great people in the podcast too. So I'll link up some of those episodes. And where else can people find you? Um, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Uh, not really, no. Find me on the old Instagram, drop me a DM, you know, say hello. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy to speak to people on Instagram and that's about it. I'm not, uh, I'm not flogging any supplements or anything like that. <laughs> not just a jolly old Irish lad trying to learn more about uh, the Mediterranean diet, you know? There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, guys, thanks a million for listening. If you did listen and um, if you'd like to obviously follow more of our stuff, you can get involved in the Coach's Corner. That'll be linked below and we do have coaching spaces available. So if you're interested in that um, and I will also obviously link up to all of Richie's stuff be- below, including his social media. And that is it for this week. We will see you in the next episode.